This is Leslie Kane, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Blendjet for sponsoring this episode at a time when many of us are certain more than ever top secret technology is being hidden from us by our own governments. One private contractor is leaving the hangar door wide open. The Blendjet 2 is the pinnacle of portable blending technology. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. That's a real benefit for me. Lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. You can choose from over 30 colours including Royal Blue Glacier and Slate all very stylish. Many of you have already been in touch telling me you picked up a Blendjet too and love it so thank you for supporting the podcast and getting yourself a cool bit of tech. If you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? Go to Blendjet.com and grab yours today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined by director and producer of the latest documentary to hit your streaming services, Secret Space UFOs, Apollo 1-11. to Darcy Weir is a documentary filmmaker who has chosen to explore some of the most intriguing topics of discussion today, including UFOs, cryptids and Bitcoin. With over 15 feature-length documentaries under his belt, he also directs and produces the piece we're talking about today. Today. So welcome to the pod, Darcy. Thank you, Andy. Happy to be here. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm very well. And uh, I've just finished watching the documentary about an hour ago. Um, so I've enjoyed it. Well, for the second time, the first time you watch it and the second time you take notes. Um, for anyone who was expecting Mike Barra potentially to be joining us, Mike's not been able to make it. But we've got Darcy, as I called you before we hit record, the genius behind the production. So yeah, no no blowing any more smoke. Uh, well, no, don't call me a genius, man. More like a delinquent. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take that. So the, the delinquent behind the production, I'll cut out genius and that'll sound really rude. Um, but listen, Darcy, lots to get to. I asked out for listener questions for this quite late on in the last few days as well and, and got a fair few in too. So uh, from people who have seen and not seen the documentary, when did the idea for this particular piece first come about for you? Yeah, so I was actually already working on, like this is part of a series, Um and I had done two other documentaries. So I did uh, Secret Space UFOs, NASA's first missions, which is like covering the X-15 mission um, missions, which uh, were a rocket-based space plane that was mounted to the wing of a bomber, modified uh, bomber. <clears throat> and the X-15 launched off that and flew into almost orbit, you know, just outside the Earth's atmosphere. 
So NASA's first missions covers X-15, which was the very first NASA designated astronaut uh, missions. And then um, Mercury and Gemini missions, right? Uh, these were considered the bridge to the moon, the, the missions that astronauts would test and practice just getting into space outside of the planet and revolving around the planet, you know, in orbit. Um, all of those missions essentially had UFO sightings. And uh, like the X-15 pilots literally said that they were tasked with taking photos of UFOs by NASA and the Air Force, even back in 1960, 1961. So UFOs have always been a part of NASA and space history. Um, so I made that documentary. I made uh, Secret Space UFOs in the beginning with Kerry uh, Martinuk, who's like basically a space historian that focused on trying to drill, drill down and find all of these anomalies that existed during these early space missions. And um, this was the next film to make in the series, you know, covering... Apollo 1 to 11. And um, I think this documentary is very important because he, I brought, I have Richard Dolan talking about the history of UFO secrecy, right? Which is quite pertinent in the 60s. And I have Mike Barra talking about his knowledge of moon based anomalies bases or structures that come up in the photos. Um, and, you know, he worked really closely with Richard C. Hoagland, who was uh, a science correspondent for CBS and um, very bright guy. He's kind of disappeared recently, but he was huge like 10 years ago. He was in this UFO community in a big way. Um, and then I've got James Fox who talks about, you know, essentially his experience when Buzz Aldrin, how he got close to Buzz Aldrin, you know, through Mick, Mickey Rooney. Uh, James Fox wasn't always a film producer that focused on UFO uh, subject matter. He was working in Hollywood. He was a production assistant and a bunch of other roles, just doing stuff on set. And when you work on sets, you become close with actors sometimes if you've got a good personality. And James Fox is obviously one of these people that can become friends with anybody. He's just a good person. And he became friends with Mickey Rooney, uh, eventually became friends with Faye Ann Potter, who's the sister and really close friend of Buzz Aldrin. I don't know if you have siblings, but sometimes you're not close with your siblings. Sure. Um, yeah. And she and Mickey Rooney both told James Fox that Buzz, he should talk to Buzz Aldrin. And they eventually hooked him up. He um, 
had a meeting scheduled and, you know, in this story, we just kind of cover how Buzz Aldrin ghosted him. (laughs) And, um, yeah, this, this documentary I think is important because it, it, you know, shows that there's a history of NASA running a PR campaign even early on during the Apollo missions. And that PR campaign still is, it goes on today. You know, it still is functioning today. And that PR campaign, um, you know, basically is to cover up anything to do with UFOs that they already know about. Um, and, 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 disseminate information that they feel comfortable that the public should know. And that, that means a very sanitized version of everything to do with the moon, to do with space and the planet. Um, they're, they're more, they try to show themselves as almost like a climate um, agency, you know, on behalf of looking out for, Earth, uh, Earth's climate and climate change and stuff like that. But there's so much history of them being in space and covering up the anomalies and, and strange things going on there. You've gave a really nice, succinct overview of the documentary. And obviously, I'm not going to come on here and talk about everything within it. We want people to go and watch it and make up their own minds as well. So we'll touch on various aspects. Um, NASA, though, what I was thinking as I was watching it is if this organization, you know, people say NASA, never a straight answer, um, or they're involved in the a, UFO cover up. Yeah. That was a Stanton Friedman line. Yeah. Why go into this way back when in the sixties and seventies in such a big public way when if there's a knowledge, and we're going to go with the assumption Roswell happened, that the US government had possession of crashed craft, potentially bodies that are aware of alien races, non-human intelligence, why allow NASA to be so public with moon missions and filming in space and putting anything out there when they know potentially they're going to run the risk of capturing things on camera, which they eventually do? And we'll get to how they kind of cover some of those things up. But why even get to that place where you allow that to happen? Oh, I mean, the United States has been at war with many different countries uh, economically and physically for a long time. And at that time, they were in a Cold War with Russia. Um, now it's like Russia, China, we're, we're really at the precipice of world war three. It's crazy. But, um, back then they wanted to flex their economic and scientific supremacy over the world. So getting to space and putting a man on the moon was in their best interest to show their adversaries how powerful they were. Um, So I think it didn't matter that they were going to pick up anomalies. Like I said, they have a active PR campaign always going on, uh, which filters 
a lot of the truths that they've found on the moon and outside of our planet's atmosphere, for sure. This is propaganda. And, um, you know, I've had arguments with flat earthers and all kinds of folks that don't believe we even went to the moon, which drives me absolutely nuts. But what can you do? People are stupid and um, they don't believe in science. They, they, you know, there's, it's almost like religion and, and uh, this cultism that exists on the planet trumps science. And because there's such a lack of trust in our institutions right now, and NASA is guilty for that. I think NASA should have been forthright about things that they found. If they had early on, they probably would have earned the trust of the public and people wouldn't have been uh, in such large amounts in the United States, the Europe, and so on, uh, been subscribing to flat earth theory and, and these ridiculous, like we never went to the moon, um, theories. I mean, if you watch the documentary, if you just do a little bit of research, you realize that we went to the moon, you know, uh, since Apollo eight, we didn't land on the moon till Apollo 11, but we went around the moon, Apollo eight, Apollo nine, Apollo 10, and then we land, right? So you also get these people that are like, how do you get outside of the Van Allen belt? How did you, you know, yeah. has NASA ever explained that? And it's like, dude, they, they got out of the Van Allen belt since Apollo eight. Sure. Like there's radiation out there, but they figured it out and there's ways to navigate through that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all it was in NASA's best interest to get to the moon before the Russians. And then Russia were actually the ones that started this propaganda against the United States, which the American public has eaten up. And that's why you have guys like flat earthers and, and Apollo moon mission deniers that essentially have been uh, listening to Russian propaganda all these years. And the Russians were the first ones to come out and say, you can't get through the Van Allen radiation belt because we couldn't, right? But Russia just doesn't have the money. They haven't focused on putting man on the moon. They, they have focused on other things and they haven't done well at other things. And, you know, um, I think people will, will see that. One of the best bits of evidence, I think, that's threaded throughout the documentary are the, the transcripts of what the astronauts say, which were obviously marked confidential, and some of the commentary from the astronauts as they are orbiting or uh, as picked up by the black box, which is on each of the, the modules. Um, and I just wonder, why do you think that sort of evidence, which for me is pretty high-level stuff, you know, they're talking about, do you see that down there? Can you hear that noise? Yeah. Wow, look at that. That's incredible. Uh, and again, within some of the transcripts, describing objects, describing structures. Why has that not caught the general public's imagination more? 
at the levels that would hold officials accountable for what seems to be such a big cover-up? Um, I don't think it's just, I, I think it's, the fact is that a lot of that information has been pretty well censored. Um, for example, the, the transcripts, which all of that came off of a device called the DSEA, the Data Storage uh, Equipment Recorder. Um, it's essentially a black box flight recorder, and that's on all commercial flights right now. You know, if you're a civilian flying from, you know, Scotland to Italy, there's a black box on every plane and they're designed so that they're pretty much indestructible. So if they recover the plane after it's crashed, let's say from the sea floor, even they can see the telemetry data. They can see the conversations that were had by the pilots before it went down so they can understand what happened. Um, so Apollo, the Gemini, missions, uh, even the Mercury missions, all of these different capsules that flew in space had the same sort of technology. It was a little bit different during Gemini. They called it the VTR, but it was the same thing, essentially. And especially when the pilots, when the uh, crew members first went around to the backside of the moon on Apollo 8, um, they started, first of all, for whatever reason, they were out of radio contact with Capcom. So they couldn't even communicate with them. And that's where devices like the DSEA came in really handy because when they came back to earth, Capcom was able to go through all that data and be like, okay, this is, you know, this matches up with their debriefing data and pictures that were taken and all that type of stuff. Right. Um, and actually starting from Apollo eight is when they started noticing that there was almost like this music that played on the backside of the moon. And we really hear about that again during Apollo 10. Um, I don't, I don't understand I'd say it's propaganda and it's also um, information control that uh, makes the general public suffer from not knowing this information in, in greater detail, right? And um, it's NASA's fault, pretty much. I mean, those those transcripts were classified as well. Why would a civilian research agency, if you're really just a civilian research agency and you're not a military apparatus, which is what they really are, they work for the Air Force and the Navy. Um, they're like the military's nerds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, if, if you were just a civilian agency, you would not classify data. And those transcripts were classified for 12 years before they were released to the public. Um, we go over a bunch of the photo evidence and DAC motion picture uh, footage that was shot during these missions. 
And that was, you know, obviously sanitized too. Sometimes they didn't catch everything. And that's what we're trying to go over in the documentary. Like, Hey, what's this? What's that? You know? And we try to provide the exact missions that either the footage was caught or the exact frame numbers that these uh, pictures were taken that seemed to show anomalies. Let, let me say that is one thing I did like that. And I wasn't sure what to expect going in that would the evidence be put in front of me and I'm being told this is what it is. And largely the evidence is put out there and it's, you know, what could this be? This shouldn't be there or this clearly isn't an artifact. You know, it's very much there's something here and it's make up your own mind for the most part. It's fair to say, though, there's a lot of space junk floating about from years of humans exploding and littering in space and around the atmosphere. What are some of the best pieces of evidence for you, Darcy, that you present in the documentary that you could say categorically, this is not junk and points to something far more exotic in origin? Is there anything for you that really stands out? Yeah. um, Mike Barra comes into the picture and starts talking pretty early on in the documentary. And um, I think Apollo 10 was where we started to recover all kinds of really strange photos that um, come from the backside of the moon or parts of the moon that we just don't regularly see. You know, uh, we only ever see one face of the moon. And um, that's a, that's a peculiar, you know, peculiar thing about the moon is that it doesn't revolve on an axis like the earth does it it simply stays facing our planet no matter where it goes around earth one face is constantly being shown anyways um on apollo 10 uh there's a frame number called as 10 32 and you know whenever we look at these photos if it says as eight or AS 10, it denotes the mission that it was on and then which frame number of photos that they took after that. And, um, I really, I think that's, that photo stood out for me because it starts to show that there's strange, almost like scaffolding that was present above the lunar surface in the, in the sky. Um, when, you know, photo analysts like Mike Barra or Kerry Martinuk, who I worked with on this documentary and and other ones in the series, um, do just simple things with Photoshop, like color peaking or contrast adjustments, you start to see, um, structures that are present above the moon. And, um, yeah, I, I think this this it's a head scratcher. Some people I've talked to have watched um, the film and they've been like, you know, I don't know if I agree a hundred percent with Mike Barra on some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, that photo seems really interesting to me, especially the one that shows almost what looks like uh, there's a there's a part of the film where he breaks down that NASA essentially the astronauts 
had Hasselblad um, deep, not deep, SLRs. They had Hasselblad um, analog photography cameras. Mm-hmm. And on that, they had what's called the power winder. It's like a little gear that if you press the button, it will take a successive sort of amount of photos, like four or five or maybe even 10, if you just kept your finger down on the shutter uh, button. And Richard Hoagland um, found a photo in the archive that was just completely black. So the frame was apparently empty with data. And when he requested that photo from NASA, he found that it wasn't actually, excuse me, it wasn't actually black. It was actually a totally different photo, which was weird in itself. And then he found out that there was academic institutions, universities that were all around the globe that had the same frame number that he was getting. He was requesting that uh, photo from their archives that were completely different from this blacked out photo that if you go now on the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which is the official website for NASA Apollo Mission Photography Archive, um, if you look up that frame number, you'll just see a black frame. But the universities from around the world, they have a different photo because at the time NASA was handing out photos apparently like, you know, candy. They were just making this information accessible to all. Um, And their censorship program was a little bit looser back then. They didn't think that people would be so keen to figure things out and and see strange things in the photos. Um, And anyways, essentially in the film, what we break down is this black frame that NASA has in their archive from the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal. Apparently, uh, it's different all around the world from different archives because it was shot with a power winder. And that means the astronauts were floating over the lunar surface. They held down the button on the camera. It took a succession of photos. And each one of those photos is part of that one sequence. So NASA was kind of lazy and they just put up the black one because they don't want you to see anything that really was caught out there in space that's weird and they kind of filter that data by only showing you know a bogus photo whereas in the photos that Richard Hoagland and and Mike Barra went over there's all this structure and strange what looks like almost bases on the lunar surface some of uh one of the power winder pictures from that same series shows what looks like a city on the lunar surface. Um, And, and Mike refers to it as being almost like the size of LA, Los Angeles. Um, And in one of the sequences, you see what looks like lights emanating from that um, geographical area that looks like a city. And and then another sequence, you see something that looks like almost like a tower that has um, like a dish or some kind of like Mm -hmm. 
uh, I don't know. It, it looks like a Y-shaped structure. I think that's really interesting stuff. And the fact that the public doesn't know about all that, um, you know, you, <clears throat> not everybody reads, but if you go read um, Dark Mission, which is Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra's book, they look at a lot of those photos and they break down where that came from. And um, my film is trying to do some of that research, you know, a small amount compared to what they cover in that whole book. Um, it's trying to do some of that service, you know, try and show that to the public because we're a very visual species. You know, we, we want to learn through observation and my film is trying to demonstrate that. Hi everyone, if you listen to the podcast on an Apple device, you can support directly by going on to Apple Podcasts and clicking the subscribe button. And for less than the price of a coffee per month, you can get early access to episodes, episodes in full, and no adverts or sponsorships like this one you're hearing now. It also supports directly to me at the podcast, so thank you very much. Also, don't forget to go and leave the podcast on Apple a five-star review and make sure you click the follow button too. Thanks. I'm glad you mentioned at the start of that that it's something that a lot of people struggle with because it's one of those moments that did make me sit back and go, hmm, because it is such a stretch, even with what we're talking about and all the subjects I talk about in the UFO and the UFO topic, to then say we've got huge structures on the moon. Now, these structures, people sent in some questions asking, how could we see these with telescopes from Earth that are now really powerful? They're on the other side, like you mentioned. So, and I get, yeah, for the skeptic, straight away, they're, oh, yeah, typically they're on the other side, so we can't see them. But yeah, it also makes sense to say that is where you would build structures away from the planet so it can't be seen because we have this, this body the celestial body that just orbits from one side which is really frustrating so it, it really did make me think and i know people will look at it and think is it pareidolia where you're you're looking to see something that's maybe there or maybe not there it certainly looks like from the pictures that there is something which you can definitely say and i wonder if we go with okay there are structures on the moon and mike Barra and richard hoagland aren't the only people to say this this has been claimed by many many others as well I would ask you, who do you think, Darcy, have put those structures there? Are we looking at secret human missions? Are we looking at ancient human civilizations? Or are we looking at something else which is there observing? Yeah, I think... I mean, I, I wouldn't pretend to know for sure. You know, I, 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 I speculate just like anybody else. But my logic leads me to believe that it's either um, an ancient civilization that's not us, i.e. maybe extraterrestrial, <clears throat> or it is us. And um, it's a version of us that didn't survive a cataclysm. You know, it's possible that Earth is kind of locked in this doom loop and every so many thousands of years the solar system goes through a bit of a cataclysm and everything gets reset and we start over from scratch and we lose our technology and that's where you know we lose we have this sort of like amnesia and we forget 
where we came from and what we had. Um, and I, I mean, it's entirely possible if you are stuck in some kind of doom loop where you lose all technology and, and memory of the way things were, um, we could have been through this technological cycle already. You know, we make things out of wood and uh, we make things out of concrete too, but all that stuff can disappear after erosion from thousands of years, right? Even metal just wears down to nothing. So the moon might actually have structures that are either from us, from a, uh, a previous technologically advanced time, or they're from, uh, you know, possibly an extraterrestrial society. I don't know. All equally fascinating things to speculate yeah. on, though, because they're all pretty interesting. Um, you're an experienced researcher and, and filmmaker, and you must have seen thousands of hours of testimony over the years, whether it was, you know, watching old interviews, speaking to to guests. Was there anything that you learned in the making of this documentary that really blew your mind? And was there anything potentially you thought, I want to put that in, but I can't? Um, I tried to put in, like, everything that pertained to Apollo 1 to 11. Uh, so I can't really think of anything that I missed. Uh, Mike Barra, you know, one thing that I could say that he touches on in this documentary is that NASA seemed to, at the time, have almost like a cult. Somebody uh, going for a race outside your, your building right now? Or? Did you catch that? Yeah, some uh, yeah. boy racer has just flown by. Yeah, uh, speed um, racer on um, their way to the yeah. moon. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, Mike Barra touches on the fact that uh, Buzz Aldrin was a Freemason. <clears throat> we have that famous photo uh, where he has a Freemason flag that he planted on the lunar surface. Apparently, that went up before the American flag. But, um, and, and apparently, you know, you can watch an HBO series on the moon landing missions. That's all a fictional reenactment, but it's based on real reality of what something, how some things went down. And apparently, um, Buzz Aldrin carried out a Freemason ritual within the lunar capsule before they even landed to consecrate, um, the moon as a free uh, a Masonic temple, you know, their property. I didn't touch on all of that. Um, I, I only touched on some of it in, in the film um, through Mike Barra, but <clears throat> there's evidence that the NASA, um, the institution had all kinds of weird occult cultism happening at the time um they had you know ex-nazis from the project paperclip program like Werner von braun uh they came over from after world war ii and if we didn't have minds like Werner von braun we never would have even 
been able to land on the moon because they were perfecting the uh, liquid rocket fuel technology, right? <clears throat> then you have the Freemasons. And then people talk about um, how, uh, what's his name? Alexander Crowley and um, all of these sort of like strange satanic guys were responsible for even founding NASA. I didn't really cover all of that, but I think I'm going to try and cover a bit of that in a future documentary. Um, just how there was all these like strange esoteric cults that were within NASA at the time. Uh, and one of the things that um, Mike Barra and Richard Hoagland break down in their book, Dark Mission, is that um, the strangest cult of them all was, excuse me, within NASA was um, essentially a worship of Osiris. And Osiris is a uh, Egyptian god. And this worship went the the like strange um, background to that worship essentially boils down to the NASA space program guys um, worshiping a alien race that essentially was like white people um like an advanced version of us that were from the orion um star system believe it or not uh so i'd like to go into that i think it's really weird um but it's interesting I could see how that would have also taken it away from the path that you are trying to to weave throughout the documentary as well, because it it does stay, for all we're talking about, an incredible idea. It does stay incredibly grounded, and I did enjoy how it was made and the pacing of it as well. Sometimes these documentaries, for me, can try to go 100 miles an hour and throw as much sensationalism in there as possible to keep you know flashing images on the screen. And it wasn't like that. There was context that was well-paced that kept you going with, here's the background, here's some of the information on the mission, but here's what happened, here's some evidence, and here's why we think this. And then it moved on at a really lovely pace. And it did get me thinking quite a lot as it went along. And to bring it to maybe modern times, the question I'm going to ask you now, with increasing capabilities and technology getting better, and with all sorts of celebrities and the elite about to take off with commercial space flight on the horizon, is this going to usher in a potential new age of sightings or a new age of problems for organizations like NASA and the US government potentially? And I'm thinking if Kanye West is up there with an iPhone 16 Pro Max, he is going to get some good footage out of the window of whichever craft he is on. And is that something you've thought about? Well, if Kanye West was out in space, I'd just be worried he'd open the hatch and kill himself because <laughs> he's a loose can in that one. Um, but yeah, definitely. I, I think um, that filter of keeping things from the public is slowly breaking down. Um, I actually have another documentary in this series coming out 
May 2nd. So hopefully I can get a copy of that to you to review as well. That's coming out through 1091 films. Um, it's called Secret Space UFOs Fast Walkers. And um, essentially what I try to cover is everything after the Apollo missions up until now. And, um, you know, because I, I think one of the major com comments from, um, you know, Ned's that are watching my films and, and leaving comments is like, why are you focusing on such old um, space-based history? Why aren't you covering stuff that's happening now? And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to do that. And the Fast Walkers documentary does that pretty well. We cover Skylab 3, which there was a prevalent UFO sighting during that. Um, and that was the very first space station. That was before the ISS and it was a military space station, believe it or not. Um, and then we go right through to the STS missions, which, you know, are the shuttle missions that include yeah. Challenger, Endeavor, Discovery, Atlantis, um, all of these reusable space shuttles that were launching us into orbit while we were building the ISS, the International Space Station, which is now defunct because we're about to step into a world war. Um, and you can't really play nice with the Russians in space and, and cohabitate a space station with them if you're at, at odds with them. Um, I actually found that pretty interesting that, you know, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine two weeks before the United States announced that they're no longer going to um, upkeep the ISS and do a cooperative program with the Russians. I knew something was going to happen. As soon as I read that in the news, I was like, what's happening here? Mm. But um, <clears throat> in that documentary, the, the reason why it's called Fast Walkers, if people don't really know what that is, uh, Fast Walkers is a code name that the Air Force made, and it was uh, famously sort of brought about through documentation through John Greenwald. He did a Freedom of Information Act request about, on UFOs, Fast Walkers, uh, from NORAD. <clears throat> and NORAD's been all over the news recently because NORAD detected those balloons that were floating over North America that the United States scrambled to shoot down. <clears throat> and NORAD is the North American uh, command. It's basically an airspace protection agreement between Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So when John Greenwald requested those documents, we found out that NORAD tracks fast walkers. And what is that? Um, those are space-based UFOs, plain and simple. They are unidentified flying objects that are acting erratic, that are breaking the laws of physics, that are dropping into the atmosphere from space. Um, and in that documentary, we cover the sort of chronology of space-based UFOs dropping into the atmosphere back from the seventies. And then we cover all of these STS mission anomaly footage 
you know, uh, cameras that are placed on the shuttles and then also being shot through the windows on the ISS and the shuttles by the astronauts. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's like, you know, your question is very relevant because, um, NASA has been censoring that footage and those photos as well. You know, recent space history research has been heavily censored and, and propagandized, so to speak. And um, it'll never stop, in my opinion. If you look at what they do in the documentary, I kind of uh, am breaking down that what they do is they follow some kind of strange protocol. Whenever something anomalous shows up on a space-based camera, they either do one of four things. They either cut the camera completely to like static or black blackness to, yeah. you know, not show the anomaly in space. They change the camera direction. So they'll start panning away or they will add um, some kind of filter and obscuration. Like they'll obscure the video footage or the image in some way, um, digitally or physically, believe it or not. So I think they have, um, a researcher named Jeffrey Challenger, who's now passed away, but was a physically disabled man that took great interest in the STS missions. He recorded all of that NASA downlink footage and then would go through that footage and look for strange things that were going on. And he noticed that NASA had the ability to add digital noise to the footage. And he also figured out through, you know, cause there's a cooperation with Russia, um, especially for the ISS, whenever Russia was sending up like the Soyuz capsules uh, to dock with the ISS and such, um, they would talk about the things that they were doing and they would be communicating with NASA, right? That's how close the interaction was mm -hmm. between the two space agencies, the Russian space agency and the, the uh, American space agency. And Jeffrey Challenger figured out that they actually have a 20 second video delay. So NASA has also inst instilled uh, this ability to have 20 seconds to quickly change something in the yeah. feed. And um, all of this is operated from ground control by a, a person called a CODA. Um, can't exactly remember what that stands for, but basically it's like a, an operator that mm -hmm. sits in, in Houston looking at a screen of what the cameras are doing and they can switch to different cameras and, and they can add digital noise. They can cut all kinds of stuff. So um, if you look at that behavior, um, that's been going on in recent space history with commercial and private industry. If you look at the SpaceX footage, they do the exact same thing. 
You mm-hmm. could go on YouTube and you can look up like SpaceX UFO footage or something, right? I implore people to do that. And they'll see the same behavior being carried out by their technicians. It seems like they will cut the camera, they will change camera direction uh, or, or cut the feed completely um, whenever these strange things are showing up on the video feed. So I think, and, and, you know, uh, SpaceX actually has a contract with the Pentagon. So I think they would be read into certain things and they would have to follow certain protocols when it comes to space-based information being disseminated to the public. Well, that Fast Walkers documentary sounds right up my street, so I'll try and get a copy of that from you uh, afterwards. Um, and I think we'll get Chrissy will, that. yeah, Chrissy Newton. Yeah, brilliant. Know. I'll drop her a message. She'll send it to you, yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and you mentioned at the start there that the the kind of naysayers are folks who maybe don't like you looking at the older historical aspect of the UFO topic. People can forget this is such a big conversation. It does go back a long time. Some people listen to parts of this podcast, and I know a lot of folks will pick and choose the interviews they listen to based on what they like in the subject. Not everyone listens to everything. Thank you if you do. But I'm the same when I listen to podcasts as well normally. I think with the UFO topic, it is important, though, to look back because it gives us a lot of the questions and maybe even some of the potential answers for things to come. And I want to know, as we we sit now, we're recording this on the 13th of April. Um and, and we on the nineteenth, six yeah, days, and, yeah, yeah, six on days the nineteenth of April, hundred percent. We've got those UFO hearings on the horizon in the US, yeah. and I wonder though, this is another thing that made me think watching the documentary. What do you think, Darcy? The impact would be if, if it was confirmed for decades, the US had technology far beyond the basic rockets of NASA uh, and those early Apollo and Gemini missions that, at times came at the price of the lives of astronauts if the public in the u.s particularly found out that they had anti-gravity technology reverse engineer technology they were going back and forward to space yet at the same time they were sending up military personnel veterans mothers fathers aunts uncles you know brothers and sisters to die all in the name of a big show what are the reactions of the public if and when that information comes out I think the masses will not react because they'll be watching a Kardashian show or, um, you know, Kanye West um, doing something crazy. But I think the UFO community will be pretty outraged, right? Um, I think that it won't really matter because it's like the information control is just so heavily propagandized right now that um i mean if you even look at the ufo community everybody's fighting with each other everybody's calling everybody's calling everybody a grifter it's so friggin annoying right <clears throat> excuse me i've got a bit of a cold but no, um, it's okay. yeah like it's when i first started getting into this stuff the ufo community was like mostly welcoming to everybody and now it's like vitriol is being tossed back and forth and people are fighting amongst amongst each other and you've got these like almost ufo cult leaders that are super powerful and they're trying to debunk 
other people doing good work in the field, bringing forward new information. Um, I think that's actually in the best interests of the intelligence agencies for this type of fighting to infighting to be going on. Because if a normal person comes across this information, somebody who's just used to watching sports and celebrity sort of uh, stuff on TV, and they go, what? There's UFO hearings on April 19th. Um, what? The government is admitting that there's we're possibly not alone in the universe, yada, yada. And they start to look into this. Well, they're going to come across the cult leaders, um, the UFO cult leaders fighting amongst each other and uh, being naysayers and debunking the new kids on the block, trying to get good information out there. Um, they're going to hear about this theory that there's going to be a fake alien invasion in the future and all this stuff. And they're going to be turned off right away. And they're going to be like, these people are crazy. So it's actually in the best interest of the intelligence agencies for the community to be that dysfunctional and for this information to come out the way it is. Um, and I think that's really unfortunate. And, and uh, I don't think we're going to get some kind of um, reaction from the public that is good, you know, in terms of the UFO um, information that's coming out. I think only the UFO community is going to react to that uh, a certain way. And it, it's not like whatever comes out on April 19th is going to be the tip of the iceberg. You know, it, you and I have been probably researching this for long enough that we know a lot of different things that have been happening throughout history with regard to this regards to this issue that's very important right yeah but um you're going to have a huge camp of people in the UFO community accusing April 19th of just being propaganda of being uh, a, a disclosure that's a farce and you're also going to have um, people saying that it's a nothing burger. I hate that friggin' term. And, you know, all kinds of like negative stuff. And to me, uh, these congressional hearings are really important. They're really impactful to me because it's like we've been living this real, this like sort of subculture reality, investigating this strange UFO history for so long. And it's vindicating that this is actually happening in the public eye now through the Congress, right? Yep. Um, but yeah, that's my theory. That's my thoughts on how the public's going to react. I can't, I can't massively disagree with with much or, or any of that, to be honest, Darcy. I've said on the podcast before for folks who may have heard. Um, do you know what was on last year at the same time as the first set of UFO hearings? So I was in the kitchen watching it live on YouTube. Um, I think it started about 2 p.m. UK time last year. Um, and my wife was in the sitting room watching TV. And do you know what else was on at the same time when you mentioned the Kardashians? Uh, was that like 
Kanye going crazy with the like n- Nazi like racist. No, it was the middle of the Depp Amber Heard trial. It was getting towards oh, the end of the Johnny Depp huge. Amber Heard trial. And yeah, I, I loved it too. I was watching, you know, watching but it. That, that was, I'm that guilty was for that as well. Yeah, but, but there was but a difference. I was in one room watching a YouTube stream with, I think, 10,000 people on a YouTube stream, whereas many more millions were watching the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. And you're like, something pretty historic, pretty incredible is happening here. But look over here at this shiny thing in this hand. And yeah, it's so I can't disagree that the the general populace, and that's when when I see a lot of the influencers or or some of the names, and I respect many of them, other ones I disagree with. And I disagree with a lot of people. I think you've got to be an adult in 2023 and be able to talk and have a reasoned conversation with someone you disagree with and both Mm -hmm. come away from it learning something and go, yeah, do you know what? Maybe you'll be right. Maybe I'll be right. Maybe we'll both be wrong. Who knows? but have that conversation and people would be so much better off for it. It's a lost art being able to speak to someone you disagree with and ha- be an adult about it. Um, yeah. But that's that's something that is way, way lost. And for, for anyone who, these things happen so rare these days, I watched two people, not that I agree or disagree with neither of them on a lot of things, but I just happened to catch a clip of another podcast a few days ago and Ben Shapiro, who I don't know yeah. too much about the guy, but he'll be well known to American listeners, definitely. Mm-hmm. And Russell Russell Brand, two very different people, and that's very, what I very yeah, different people. Very, and, and I caught my attention ben Shapiro on Facebook. Is like as far right in the United yeah. States as he can go. Yep. And uh, the two of them, it caught my attention, like an eight minute video clip. I think it was on Facebook or Instagram, and they were both talking about their differing views. But it was really interesting to see two people sitting, being adults with differing views just having a conversation and i think you can learn a lot from from that type of type of scenario and situation and taking me back to the ufo cult leaders influencers there's a lot of claims made you know a lot of things and anonymous sources things get pushed back and yada 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 whether it's information whether it's entertainment whether it's infotainment or all of the above people are looking for it's a huge subject and there's room for everyone mm-hmm. and it's an interesting time so whatever happens would- on 19th of april you know it, we're going to have people disagreeing and not talking with each other in the UFO community. It would be wonderful to have Lou Elizondo and Stephen Greer talk to each other. 100%. Imagine yeah. that. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a really interesting conversation if we had that on a stream where people were not finger pointing and claiming each other are a fraud? Yeah, sit them that down would, either side of Joe Rogan and have them just talk. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we both know that, like, Joe Rogan's kind of, like, the biggest influencer in the world right now. And if he had these two guys who are massive in the UFO community and people fighting over their authenticity, um, being adults and just having a normal conversation. uh, But I don't think we'll see that because – Unfortunately, there's too much too much at odds, and there's too much to basically be lost. Like I obviously appreciate Stephen Greer for the things he's done in the past, um, and I really appreciate Lou Elizondo as well for the things he's doing now. But um, you get people that are in like two different camps, you know, they, they, they are in these echo chamber of 
the Greer stuff or they're in the echo chamber of the Lou stuff. And for somebody to kind of be in the middle and listen to both is, I think, important. Hi everyone, Andy here. This is a special announcement for folks who listen to the show via Spotify. You can now support the pod directly through Spotify for less than the price of a coffee each month, giving you ad-free content, no sponsorships, early access and bonus shows as well. So many of you have chosen to support the show through Patreon and Apple Premium, and I appreciate this has been a long time coming for Spotify listeners. Just search That UFO Podcast Premium in Spotify, or click the link in this description for this announcement. Or you can sign up for Patreon for the additional benefits that come with those tiers. Again, thank you to everyone who supports the podcast and just listens to the shows. Lots of great content to come. Absolutely. Um, one more question I want to get to before we ask some listener questions. Um, you mentioned NASA uh, and recent times and the congressional hearings coming up. NASA has its own independent study about to wrap mm. in the next kind of six to eight weeks. I'm led to believe, speaking to someone who's on the study. Um, yeah. Do you think NASA can still fit into the UFO conversation at all in an unbiased way? Do you think this study is going to give us anything to sink our teeth into? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I through past behavior that I'm documenting, um, I, I don't think they could. Why would they change? They would have to go back and admit that they've done some wrongdoing. They've uh, been part of the UFO cover-up in order to buy the trust of the UFO community, for example. But I don't think they're interested in us. I think they're only interested in the masses. They're interested in the folks that are uh, part of, you know, subscribing to the bread and circus, the distractions that are keeping us, you know, dumbed down as a society. And, and I think that, um, they're part of this disclosure that's happening right now. And they have to be because they're a scientific authority in North America. So if they come out with some kind of UAP UFO, uh, data, that looks authentic, then it makes it more serious. And you again, get the regular Joe, you know, dropping their bag of chips while they're watching football, because they just read a headline that NASA is admitting that there's authentic UFO or UAP sightings and information. But, you know, um, Axios, the news agency, right. That that's, um, they're pretty top notch. They recently did an interview with uh, what's the NASA administrator's name? Nelson. Bill Nelson. Bill Nelson. Sorry. Um, so Bill Nelson <clears throat> quite openly states that we're going to have that information coming out, like you're saying, five to eight weeks in the middle of the summer, uh, the beginning of the summer, I think in June, um, and. They're focusing on what's what's really interesting. I've spoken to uh, Avi Loeb, who's the head of Project Galileo, which is a private um, research group to try and detect 
UAP and UFOs with new tracking systems that are Earth-based, right? <clears throat> and he got a certain amount of millions, millions of dollars. But if you watch the Fast Walker documentary, you'll realize that we've had satellite-based detection uh, instrumentation and Earth-based uh, radio telescopes and stuff like that that have been detecting anomalies for many, 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 many years, for decades, right? Um, fast walkers, UFOs, right? And a slow walker, for example, is a satellite, right? It's something that we, we can detect and is just gradually drifting through the sky, through space. A fast walker is something that's anomalously jumping around, entering the atmosphere, jumping out, whatever. And uh, essentially, you're looking at Bill Nelson in this Axios interview saying that they're going to be coming out with data and what NASA's goal is to unify some of their detection uh, space in instrumentation, both on the planet and off planet, to look for UFO activity. So they're essentially going to be doing, they're admitting that they're doing what Project Galileo is doing, but with their own, you know, vast network of research and instrumentation that they've owned for many, many years now. Um, <clears throat> And the other piece to that puzzle is that the defense agencies have all kinds of instrumentation that's out there in space, you know, and on the planet. NORAD, for example, have have had uh, telescopes and radio telescopes and radar systems and all that um, that look into space. And all of that information is completely classified you you know the public is not supposed to see that information because it's in the interests of the american uh, military to defend and protect the country i think it would be interesting if nasa starts cooperating with uh the military publicly and says we're going to be looking at some of their their instrumentation as well I fear it might make Project Galileo a little bit irrelevant. You know, all these different organizations, Galileo Project, uh, we've got UAPX, there are, uh, you know, the NASA instrumentation that they have got and anything else that's out there at the moment is a bit like John, Paul, George and Ringo all going away in solo careers and never forming the Beatles and not realizing that they could have recorded Abbey Road and Sgt. Peppers and all those great albums and tracks and doing their own individual thing when actually if you just got together and communicated but that's that's the world we live in these days like you say it's on the precipice of potential wars again you know on, on a global scale it's it's very unlikely to be happening isn't it um yeah i think that um if the department of defense start unifying with NASA's instrumentation, those two, uh, you know, space sensor groups get together. That's like Paul McCartney and John Lennon re reuniting to make an album. And that's going to make poor Ringo, Project Gal Galileo, 
kind of irrelevant in my opinion because he only has a, a certain amount of money that he has to set up these uh detection systems anyways and he's gonna run out of it um yeah i think it's yuri geller right that invested in that who's one of these space entrepreneurs kind of like bob bigelow or uh jeff bezos or um elon musk all the rich people are doing stuff in space you know all the richest people in the world are interested in space and Bob Bigelow is one of these guys that quite infamously is interested in UFOs as well. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, and do you know what I did love? And a very quick side note, you mentioned the phrase, you know, people throwing their bag of chips up in the air while they're watching football. I love that listeners on either side of the pond will hear that exact same sentence and hear it in two different ways because it means very different things in either side yeah. of the pond. Two different sports and chips one, mean two different things One over things the as shoulder well. and one with your legs, right? Yeah, and one chips is crisps and the other one chips is like fries. So there we go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, different imagery, but bringing people together, unlike the US and Russia. Um, listener question. Darcy, let's finish off with some of those. Uh, and first off, Dave Smethurst regularly contributes a lot of questions. So thanks, Dave. He wants to know, can I ask Darcy, what does Darcy make of Tom DeLong's narrative about alien aliens being on the moon as well as under the ocean? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily Tom DeLong's, you know, uh, story. I think he's just come across that. That's been... I mean, I made a documentary, the first documentary I ever made was in 2000, started making in 2009, and I published it to YouTube initially in its initial form on YouTube in 2012, and that was called The Underground. And I spoke to guys like Richard Souter, who is really hard to get a hold of now. Richard Souter wrote three books on underground base construction and you know that sort of conquest that was being led by the Americans and Britain as well in um, in plain hidden in plain sight is one of his books he talks about these plans that the British military had to build a massive under ocean base by the British Navy <clears throat> and he got the illustrations that were done by a famous um, illustrator that worked for the military industrial complex <clears throat> and um yeah i think bases being under the ocean and in space has been part of the narrative the ufo narrative for a long time uh, i mean i appreciate tom DeLong. a lot of people a lot of people may fall into a camp where they think Tom DeLong's uh, story is a distraction or, you know, I, I don't believe any of that. I think what he's done is he's further legitimized the UFO study in the public arena. Um, like no one else has, you know, he's a, he's a, a, a rock star that turned his interest into towards UFO ufology and brought it to the masses in a bigger way. And I appreciate that about him. I, I, I think anybody that's going to legitimize this subject to some point is doing good work, no matter what. 
and he's clearly a fan of the subject as well. That's that always comes across. He's passionate about it, and whether he's he's got some things right and some things wrong. And from what I understand, as many others have said, he got a few scoldings from some of the things he went too far in talking about that he shouldn't have. Um, but yeah. that's the kind of stuff that people want. We want to hear politi- politicians leaking things left, right, and center. You know, Tim Burchett, You know, um, Mike Gallagher, Rubio, Warner, Gillibrand. You know, Gillibrand. The people would love these folks to come out and say what they've heard or what they've seen in briefings, but at the minute they won't. Um, so yeah, who knows? But I'd also want to know from from Dave Smethers asking: Has Darcy picked up any more new info on black triangles and particularly TR three Bs or other ARVs since his last movie? I'm always scanning for information about that. Um, look, I think black triangles are possibly a mix of our technology that we're seeing in our skies as well as possible extraterrestrial um, technology because we've heard some pretty credible accounts of um, these type of crafts even sort of touching down and I do touch on that in this documentary I don't know if you noticed the James Fox segment where I asked him if he believed in a secret space program or, um, you know, the possibility that TR3Bs are out there. Um, And I I further asked him if the Phoenix Lights incident might have been our technology, right? And he has a very uh, candid response to that where he says, no, he thinks it's, you know, not from our planet. Yeah, it was two miles wide and, you know, Fife Simon Timmy mentions all of that as well, doesn't he? Yeah, he also mentions uh, the fact that there was like a tel- telepathic aspect. A lot of the people that witnessed that that night from all over the state stated that they started getting like interactions with the object that seemed to be like some kind of communication being beamed into their head. Um, and that's pretty incredible stuff. You, you wouldn't hear about that if you saw a TR-3B because that's just our nuts and bolts craft. I don't think we really have, we're not that advanced yet. Um, but, you know, I've talked to Michael Schratt and he doesn't, you know, TR-3B is a myth, right, to him. It's just... It's a code name or a um, a nickname for something that's anti-gravitic that was built by us, an ARV and uh, a- alien reproduction vehicle. <clears throat> and you have, you know, I've spoken to Larry Lowe, who all of a sudden doesn't like me, but um, he he believes that the the Phoenix Lights was a TR3B. So you've got these really interesting camps out there and these theories of what's going on and interacting with our planet. And I think it's a mix. I think it's definitely some of our stuff that's deeply classified and some of their stuff. And uh, I I don't think our stuff is, uh, well, if you talk to Jim Goodall, he'll say, you know, we can produce Tic Tacs. We can produce everything. I don't think we are producing Tic Tacs. 
Um, but, and I, and I think the go fast gimbal footage and the Tic Tac footage that's been quite famous since 2017. I don't think that it, those are our vehicles. I think that the American military, the department of defense is sitting on a mountain of evidence, both visual and, um, classified documentation that the public will never see. People are always saying like, why doesn't Jeremy Corbell release more footage? And it's like, dude, it's classified. He doesn't want to go to jail. Would you want to? No, not over like, you know, the UFO uh, subject is really important and everybody wants to see more footage. I do too, but not at the risk of being thrown in jail. And there's also an argument, a lot of that footage, whether it's been released by Jeremy Corbell, whether it's James Fox, Virginia, footage that he's aggressively going after, um, or the the leaked videos through the Tic Tac, you know, the Go Fast, the Gimbal. There's an argument that if, for some people, it was almost better that none of that was released because it, it's never enough. And the, the da- they don't get the data to come with it that would really satisfy their curiosity. And even mm-hmm. then, what, what is enough? It's, it's never going to be enough. So do you want a leak like that from Jeremy Corbell every day of the year? I would take it. Some of it, I think, is prosaic. Some of it may be misidentifications, but it's usually interesting mm-hmm. to at least hear people d- try and debunk it or get to the bottom of it. I think the last release was, it did look like a missile, the Mosul, to be fair. The, Mos- the Mosul Orb? Um, they, they had the orb and then you had the one after it that showed the frames of the cigar looking object going across was it ba- was it Baghdad or something oh yeah Baghdad yeah, yeah, Phantom yeah. and I looked and mm-hmm. went for all intents and purposes that does look like a missile um, but yeah. then you hear yeah the, but you don't have the data and all the stuff from the background yeah we don't mm-hmm. so without that I, 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 think, I get the frustration I think he's smart because he's releasing what he can right um, without getting into too much trouble about it. But then you've got every debunker and armchair skeptic attacking him, Mick West and, and everybody uh, coming out of the woodwork. Um, and he's in a difficult place because he can't release more, right? Yeah. Like I said, this stuff is classified. And if it is classified um, in in the documentary that's coming out on may 2nd the fast walker documentary richard dolan is in it one of my heroes and uh he quite plainly talks about an incident where somebody in the air force released classified material back in the day to the ufo community whose name escapes me right now and she got in a lot of trouble the FBI was knocking on her door, man. And you do not want to be in that position. Oh, Darcy, and- as, as we record this, have you not seen the, the breaking news from today with the airman who's had his home raided by the FBI literally hours ago who leaked the Ukraine documents online? It went onto a Discord server. And yeah. this is all kicking off. So there's someone who has leaked official documents mm-hmm. and they are in a world of trouble. This is like New York Times breaking news all over the place. And yeah. that's what people are saying. Yeah, but I don't care. I want to know about the UFOs. Yeah, we all do. But do you think 
a Lou Elizondo, a Jeremy Corbell, a George Knapp are going to sit and say, actually, here's something I'm not meant to tell you, but I will. Because yeah. they go away. Exactly. Like, no one wants to risk life and limb just to disclose UFOs. And I think that's why you get a lot of these things like deathbed confessions. Like, <clears throat> I'm friends with Stephen Cambion. I think he's good for the UFO community. He's a huge skeptic, um, debunker. He's going after everybody. Fine. You know, um, I don't think he's always right, but he is right sometimes. And um, he'll say to me like, oh, well, you know, why, why is it these people aren't just releasing all of their evidence? Why aren't they releasing all the documents and all that stuff? And the, the simple answer is you don't want the FBI knocking on your door. Uh, there is, there are things that are going to get you in trouble. And not just no you wants- though, but people, people don't think about when I'll use Lou Alexander as the big example. Okay. When he finishes an interview with me, uh, or John Greenwald or Joe Rogan or any any podcast or TV show and the camera goes off he like anyone else goes in his car or in his taxi or on the subway and goes home to his usually partner or their kids or their grandkids or their loved ones those are the people that get affected it doesn't need to be a Lou Elizondo or a Chris Mellon or a Tom DeLonge or a John Greenwald, or a a George Knapp. They have family, they have friends. And that's the people where, like in all other walks of life, pressure would be applied to. I know that happened in sport, where a director of a football club threatened the couple of guys who were the head of a fan support group with their jobs and their spouses' jobs if they didn't stop coming out and speaking negatively about a football team. You know, just that was it, conversation. Was it FIFA? Was was the no, no, organization was, that's FIFA going after? Do you know what? It was it was the former chairman of Rangers Football Club. Uh, funnily enough, and that might mean something to some listeners. But he essentially sat down with the head of a fans group and said, "Oh, you know, Darcy, your your wife, she just got a job at such and such a law firm. Yeah, yeah, I know the I know the board of directors quite well at that firm. Yeah, It'd be a shame if she lost that job, wouldn't it? Yeah, are you going to keep pushing your agenda?" And that's the kind of thing that happens on all kinds of levels. Yeah, and I mean, even people the Westall, don't think about that. The Westall incident, right? Nineteen sixty-six, April sixth. Daniel Green Greenwood was the science teacher that noticed the UFO out of his classroom and pointed that out to his class of students. Everybody was, you know, up in arms about this, and then recess broke out and. Hundreds of people witnessed one, possibly two UFOs flying over in broad daylight, a mass witness sighting, and Daniel was interviewed by the newspaper. What happened? The Royal Australian Air Force went after him. They threatened him. And his testimony is that they threatened his job. You know, they said, we're going to tell... the school that you you have a problem with drinking and you've made up all this stuff. So it's in your best interest to just stop talking about it. Don't do any more interviews with the press because they wanted to keep this under wraps. They wanted to keep that UFO incident uh, not talked about. And this happens over and over again to civilians, 
to military personnel. What's going on with Arrow right now, I think, is very important. You have um, the AARO office investigating UFO history and cases and interviewing people like Dr. Jacobs, who saw the uh, dummy warhead shot out of the sky and, and apparently filmed that. Um, and there, you know, subsequently, because he's in the Air Force, it's not like a civilian being approached. So that's where the three letter agencies like the CIA get involved. The CIA gets involved when it's military or some kind of government organization that they want to scare that person because, you know, it has to come from a, a more authoritative organization. A civilian can be approached by the FBI or, uh, you know, some kind of military uh, officer, and that'll scare them enough to give over fo photos or shut up um, and not talk about their, their case. But when you've got the military, you're going to get CIA kind of getting in there, um, taking documentation and threatening uh, witnesses not to talk about this stuff historically, right? And then you got Robert Salas, who was interviewed by Arrow. And uh, I was on a, a Twitter space the other day, and I think Chris, what's the guy's name that that's on uh, part of the Skinwalker Ranch? Chris? Chris Bell Bartell. Bartell. Bartell? Yeah. So he was talking about how he found out when he was working at the Skinwalker Ranch only once he was working there that there's a radiation uh, issue and that he was exposed to radiation uh, that may have made him sick. And he was, he's quite furious about that, but he recently, I think, I don't think he said it in the space that I was in, but um, he alluded to just getting back from Washington DC and being interviewed. Okay, so I think he went to Arrow as well, and he gave testimony about what their findings were at Skinwalker Ranch, which is a highly anomalous place on the planet, right? Um, so it's really interesting what's going on right now. People are, are skeptical about what's happening. James Fox, you know, is, is out there in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's actually actively in investigating and researching for a documentary right now, um, uh, documenting all the things that are happening uh, around Capitol Hill regarding the UFO issue. And I think he's scared, too, that all this information is going to go into Arrow and it might end up in a black hole. It might end up being classified or never released to the public who knows but um it doesn't look like it's going that way especially if we're having these ufo hearings well people listening to this in a week's time will know either way what's going to be happening the last couple of questions darcy before we let you get on with your day from time's end over on youtube uh, given there is enough evidence of this phenomenon traveling seemingly without any effort through air and then sea i don't see an issue for them to travel through land as well it's just three different states of matter we have had uh, we had 
we had humans consider the land a solid rock. However, with their technology, it should be just as easy. Essentially, they're saying, you know, traveling through solid rock, basically through solid matter. Has there been any evidence you've seen of this being studied or has anyone researched ground and earth, you know, as part of this phenomenon? I don't know if I agree with that statement. Um, no offense, but, you know, I, I, that statement makes me think back to something that Jacques Cousteau said, a famous uh, aquatic researcher that went, was one of the first people to go to deep sea and, and look at our uh, abyss and, you know, go in submarines where no man had gone before uh, to catalog things in the oceans that no person had cataloged before. He referred to the planet uh, Earth having different states of fluid. And that is a truth. Um, the atmosphere, you know, the air is a gaseous fluid and the ocean is a liquid fluid. I think if you're going to operate in a UAP, a UFO that's able to manipulate the fluid around it, whether that's a gaseous atmosphere or a liquid, uh, liquid um, like the ocean, you're more likely to be able to manipulate them similarly. One fluid is a little bit heavier than the other, obviously, right? Gas is a light fluid atmosphere and the ocean is a heavier fluid atmosphere. But I don't think that land would be as easily manipulated. I don't think that you're going to, that's not a fluid, that's a solid matter. Although there have been accounts of abductees, people that claim that they've been abducted by UFOs that were occupied by extraterrestrials. And quite often we hear about people that say that almost like the wall disappeared or they were levitating through the roof into the yeah. craft. Um, and that is a manipulation of matter. It seems when you hear about those accounts, I don't know, but, um, do, do I think that they're, you know, if you think about that state that they're manipulating matter, like a, the roof of a, a house or the wall of a house, it seems that the craft is stationary at that time, right? It's, it's in a stable state. Um, but if you look at a craft in motion that's going from the Earth's, from space, then through our gaseous atmosphere and then into the ocean, that's, that is a motion, right? And I, I think um, you need something to be fluid in order to, to be manipulating uh, the fluid around the craft, so to speak. Uh, I don't think that you'll be able to just like manipulate matter the same way. Thanks for that. And but I'm, I was not, gonna a, say, I'm not a scientist. You'll have to speak. No, to no. 
I don't think any scientists have really cracked that one yet anyway, traveling through rock and solid uh, matter. Not, you know, maybe in terms of passing an atom through it or something like that or a photon, but um, not full craft that we know of. Um, question you answered earlier in the interview from Dalamar. So thank you. That was about airbrushing uh, out of photographs and stuff from NASA. So thanks for sending that one over. And also a last question from Tim over on Patreon. What do you think of the pending Artemis mission uh, that NASA are sending, obviously, astronauts back to the moon, especially when they seem to be so aware of the moon's secrets? Uh, I think it's interesting. Uh, I think that um, Artemis is important for the United States, again, to reign supreme in space. And we do have the sixth branch of the military, the Space Force being set up uh, before the Artemis missions. So I think the Americans are uh, securing space in a public, uh, in the public's eye more than ever. Um, against their adversaries, Russia and China. But um, yeah, every country is interested in landing on the moon. If you talk to Mike Barra, he theorizes that we actually recovered technology from the moon, ancient technology that was highly advanced from possibly these structures and such. Um, his theory is that Apollo 11 was, you know, Let's land and show that we can do it. But then Apollo 12 to 17 were <clears throat> alien artifact recovery missions. Really interesting stuff. Um, but uh, I think Artemis will be, again, a combination of PR propaganda from NASA, but also maybe they'll find stuff on the moon and that will be part of the PR exercise. They'll show that publicly. But if you look at the footage from Artemis, when they recently flew to the moon, the first mission, like, it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. It's like stop motion footage. It's very yeah. laggy and poor. Um, so this time we should be getting some good 4k imagery. But I don't know. I don't even understand why they weren't able to do that on that mission like we've got 8k cameras we've got yeah. amazing resolution cameras now that should have yielded so much but again that information i mean in this documentary fast walkers that's coming out may 2nd i literally am covering uh the aspects of all the different types of camera technology that we had on the sts and the iss missions and if you look at the shuttles, they were completely laden with cameras on every surface, on the robotic arms, uh, and then also the astronauts being armed with Nikon DSLRs and video cameras inside of their pressurized uh, spaceship, shooting footage and taking pictures outside of their windows so where did all that stuff go did all of that footage and did all of those pictures get released to the public some of it did but a lot of it was probably heavily censored and a lot of that stuff is probably classified so i think artemis will just have more of that 
Well, I hope um, by the time we can get you back on, early May would be great to discuss the Fast Walkers documentary, Darcy, again, because that would be really good to talk to you. Um, but also we can talk about the hearings, you know, kind of what happened there, maybe any fallout off the back of it. Um, I want to ask you before you leave is, do you want to give us some final words to the listeners or viewers? What do you want people to take away from the documentary once they've watched this one? Um, that history repeats itself. And uh, we're probably we're we're in an incredible time in history. There's so much, th- so many things going on, especially in in terms of disclosure and UFO um, activity in Congress. Um, but I feel like there's still going to be heavy propaganda and information control because we're in an information war just as much as a a physical war with adversaries and uh, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. And those that hold the knowledge control the masses and, and therefore yield the power. Well, Darcy, correct me if I'm wrong, but Secret Space UFOs Apollo 1 to 11 should be available now on streaming platforms, including Amazon Prime, iTunes, Vudu, Google Play, and internationally on Vimeo. Is that correct? Yeah. Anything I've missed off there? No, you got it. Thanks, Andy. Awesome. Well, I can recommend people go and watch that one. Check it out, folks. I did genuinely enjoy it. I wouldn't recommend it otherwise. And let us know your thoughts and we'll get Darcy back on to discuss his next documentary, Fast Walkers, when that one comes out in the coming weeks. Thanks, Darcy. Sounds good. Thanks. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. That UFO podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is the all-in-one podcasting platform that allows you to remotely record and produce your show with the highest quality audio and video. All from the main dashboard, you can find a full suite of professional tools to get your show created and published in the easiest way possible. You'll always sound at your best as Zencaster's post-production takes the headache out of audio production, setting your loudness and levels while reducing background noise with one click. Zencaster records video up to 4K to give you the perfect picture quality, whether you're in a shed or a studio. Then Zencaster will distribute your video podcast in crisp 1080p to all video podcast players. The biggest feature for me, folks, is that I get the local file recording from each guest so their audio always comes through as best as it can, regardless of any choppy internet connections. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use code UFO Podcast and you'll get 40% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs, it's time to share your story.